Welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast, where our job is to help you build visibility, professional credibility, and connection with your ideal client by putting the human at the center of innovative marketing so you can build and strengthen an engaging, enduring relationship with your ideal clients. I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz, and I'm honored that you're here with me. If you haven't joined our wonderful marketing transformation community yet, go to innovabiz.co and collect your free gift as well. Do subscribe to the show and also leave a review because it helps others find us. Let's get into today's masterclass on this InnovaBuzz podcast. Losses are real. The distrust is understandable. The discomfort is accurate. As soon as you remember, just remember that you have choices given this change, you're beginning to act in a resilient way. And it doesn't mean you stop feeling all loss, distrust, and discomfort. You can choose to act in a resilient way. But it's until you actually remember and decide to think about what are my options here, even if you don't like any of them, what are my options here? Before then, you're in this cascade of neurochemicals that everyone has with every single change. And those, those chemicals are why we need those resilient actions and why we have to build those skills to get better at it. Welcome back. I hope you've had an awesome week up to now. If you haven't yet listened to my recent conversations with keynote speaker, coach, and award-winning stage performer, Aidan Nepom, as well as LinkedIn expert and author of Linkability, Lynn Eyre Johnston, then do go listen after you've listened to today's conversation, of course. I'm really excited today to have on the Innova Buzz podcast as my guest, resilience expert, Dr. Deborah Gilboa, otherwise known as Dr. G. She works with families, organizations, and businesses to identify the mindset and strategies to turn stress to an advantage. Renowned for her contagious humor, Dr. G works with groups across multiple generations to rewire their attitudes and beliefs and create resilience through personal accountability and a completely different approach to adversity. She's a leading media personality seen regularly on Today, Good Morning America and The Doctors. She's also featured frequently in The Washington Post, The New York Times, Authority Magazine and countless other digital and print outlets. In our discussion today, Dr. G talked to me about the eight skills and eight attributes to develop and enhance improved resilience. We talked about how to reframe stress in a way that it can serve us, just like exercise does. And we talked about why empathy is critical for resilience. Without further ado, then, let's fly into the hive and get the buzz from Dr. Deborah Gilboa. Hi, 
I'm your host, Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz, and I'm really excited today to welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast all the way from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in the United States, Dr. Deborah Gilboa, who's a resilience expert. She helps people understand the skills that actually strengthen them to take resilient actions and navigate change, which is something that, particularly in today's environment, might be a highly desirable attribute. So welcome to the Innova Buzz podcast, Deborah. It's a great privilege to have you as my guest. Thank you, Jürgen. I'm really excited to be here. Jason Van Orden, who was our guest on episode 275, and Michael Roderick, who was our guest on episode 328 of the Innova Buzz podcast, introduced us to you, Deborah. And we had a conversation following on from that. So big hello to Jason and Michael. Hey, guys. Thank you. <laughs> Now, you've been a family physician for 20 years and you've kind of discovered or realized that resilience is, is the thing that probably differentiates people who feel well-being on an ongoing basis and impacts their medical status in particular. So I'm really keen to explore that a little bit further, how you discovered that and how you now turn that work into something meaningful around resilience. But before we start talking about all things resilience and change, what is it that actually drives you and how does that shape what you do today? I am somebody who does not like the status quo. I'm, I was the kid in school who loved fire drills and days with assemblies, and it really wasn't to get out of class. It was just to have anything that would shake up the routine. I'm not great at routine. Uh, much to my teachers and parents' chagrin, and I think actually my nursing staff as well. So <laughs> what really drives me is looking to see where we've decided that something just is and to push the envelope and see if I agree, see if it really has to be that way. And this came up for me over and over and over again as a doctor and as a parent and as a friend and a family member because we have you know, we have this amazing growth mindset about all kinds of things that's changed since I was growing up. When I was growing up, whatever reading level you were in in school, for example, they would test you when you got to school and beginning of maybe grade one. And that's where you stayed. They assume that that's the level you always would be because that's where you were. But educators have learned a ton about how how we teach children helps them to grow and to not only learn more, but to be able to learn more. So that's exciting. But we persist in this idea that however sensitive you are or strong you are is a fixed character trait, and that just is. And that when people are going through hard things, which we see in all aspects of our lives, we see professionally, we see personally in our family and ourselves, when people are going through hard things, we assume some people just handle that better than others. And that is so absolutely not the case that I really wanted to say, yeah, how do we help everybody move that ball down the field? Mm, yeah, I love it. And I hear what you're saying about, you know, we we're kind of pigeonholed in boxes from a very early age and, and that almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, doesn't it? I remember, well, I vaguely remember this. It's a long time ago. But um, when I first went to school, I couldn't speak a word of English here in Australia. So I'd, I was born in Germany. I was brought up. Um, in a German household and, and before I went to school I was only um, in an environment where German speakers were and when I went to school I couldn't speak a word of English so I had a very rapid learning curve 
Now, in the early stages when I just didn't speak in class and to compensate for the fact that I couldn't understand anything, I would play up and my energy kind of was pretty exuberant. I would play <laughs> up and the teachers at the time thought, this child is bored. That was their conclusion. This child is bored. Um, the learning challenges that we're providing him isn't of a high enough standard to keep him interested. So they labeled me as gifted. <laughs> Whereas the reality was, the reality was that I couldn't understand a word of what they were saying. I was actually, I was actually struggling to get by. Um, I was labeled as gifted. I was put up to classes. Of course, as, as young children, we compensate and, and very quickly I learned enough English to speak and I managed to get by. And, and then I was the youngest in my class by two years. But that kind of put me in a situation where I had to adapt and I had to learn. And I, I benefited from that, but it was all because of a wrong diagnosis and also a pigeonhole that I was then placed into. And of course, if on the flip side of that, had I been pigeonholed into, you know, this child is, is backward, he's a slow learner, um, that may have resulted in a totally different outcome. So, yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely true. You kind of got lucky in where you got pigeonholed, but we do yeah. have this idea that we have to put people into compartments. And you know, Michael Roderick just wrote about this recently in his excellent newsletter about we don't like to be put in boxes, but we really like to be packaged. And mm. when you get put in a box, the idea is that's where I will find you when I come looking for you. I can know more about you because you're there. And the idea that I noticed the most is that people were most limited by putting themselves in this box. I'm sensitive. Mm. I don't handle change well. I don't like when structure is upset. And those things may all be true. Absolutely. A person can say that and be correct. But what they're not right about is I couldn't ever be any different than this. They may not want to be different, but if you do want to be different, it's almost always possible. And I guess if there's something that drives me, it is helping people understand that they can, if they feel that they aren't, better match their own priorities with their own reality. Mm, yeah, yeah, I love that. And there's something you said there that uh, triggered a thought in my mind, and I wonder what your thoughts are on this. And that's when we say, I am, or, or somebody else says you are, um, whether it's, you know, this child is gifted or um, I, I am stressed, I am sad, I am um, depressed, I'm upset or whatever it is. It's that language of I am, which makes it part of your character, as opposed to I'm feeling sad, I'm feeling angry, I'm feeling, um, I'm feeling as though I know a lot of things that other people don't know. Um, so what, what are your thoughts on that and, and that differentiation? Can that help us or is that just? It's an excellent way of thinking concretely about limits that we put in front of ourselves or in front of other people by accident. Most often, I think that we say I am when we're trying to be seen or understood, right? I want someone to notice and understand how I'm doing. And so we say, I am, it's really declarative, but you're right. It then sort of sticks to you with more Velcro 
than if you used a more temporary word, like I'm feeling, I'm currently feeling is what that implies. Mm -hmm. But I, I think this is really especially important in the entrepreneurial space, because as you noted, good labels like that, as well as negative labels can be limiting. If I, for example, as an entrepreneur say, I am resilient, then when I find myself struggling, it becomes much more difficult to go off brand and look for help. Hmm. Yeah. And, and that's almost an antithesis of resilience, isn't it? Because we, uh, if, and I know I, I have great difficulty asking for help and it probably comes back with, um, you know, being raised as someone that always needs to find a solution to whatever I'm faced with. And, and when I, when I come up against something and I don't have a solution to that right now, and, and I may struggle for months to find a solution to that. Uh, whereas if I had the ability to go out and ask some people who maybe can help me straight away, who like would say, Oh, this is how you do that. Um, it saved me months of stress and anguish. So that's a, a really interesting um, point, isn't it? Yeah, you've hit on the first skill, actually. There are eight skills that we that that are in the bucket that we call resilience. And the very first one is building connections, both wider and deeper. Hmm. Well, let's take a step back and, and tell me what what does resilience actually mean to you? I mean, we, we hear a lot of talk about this as there's the work of Martin Seligman, who you know, he, he mentioned resilience a lot in his work, and that's been very popular over the last 10 years or so. Um, but what does it actually mean? When I have the opportunity to ask, sometimes I work with students, and I'll have the opportunity to ask them to define a word, and they're used to that question, so they pop mm. off answers. And almost always, students will say, resilience is the ability to bounce back. And I say, that is 100% correct if you are a rubber band. Because if you're a rubber band, then your resilience is defined by your ability to return to your former shape after a stressor. But if you're a person, you are, by definition, affected by every stressor. And every change is a stressor. That's how our brains work. Good change and bad change. All change mm. is stressful. So we are affected by every stressor, every experience, every change that we go through. So for humans, resilience is our ability to navigate change and come through it as much or more the kind of person we want to be. That's a very self-efficacy definition of resilience. That's not me deciding what your resilience should look like. That's mm. me saying, for you, you're going to navigate a change and come through that change as much or even more the kind of person you want to be in the world. Mm. Yeah, I love that definition because it, it implies that you can learn from the change. And the interesting thing, of course, now in the pandemic that we find ourselves in all across the world, there's, you know, that's a pretty big disruption that was forced upon us without warning almost. And, and also without, you know, I mean, it's undesirable, right? It's an undesirable disruption and the, the follow on disruptions that have come from that. So it's very stressful. And the ability to take the changes that have been imposed upon us, adapt our react or, or select our reactions to them and our behavior to them, and then learn from them, I think is, is 
inherently important in how we move forward after the pandemic and and to i think your definition of resilience really implies that we're learning from those kind of changes and actually if you think about someone else because it's hard to have perspective about ourselves but if you think about someone yeah. else who's navigated a change from your perspective they've navigated it poorly right they they had damaging behaviors to themselves or they didn't get their desired outcome or just something about it is not how you wish it had gone for them. You would probably agree that even they have learned. They may not learn something that benefits them more next time, but we do learn from every experience that we go through. We either learn to solidify more behaviors that are damaging to us, or we learn to try behaviors or use strategies that are helpful to us, but we do learn every time we go through a change. So I completely agree. And I think it's interesting to think about the pandemic as a whole series of changes. There have mm. been so many things. I've seen a lot of people, I bet you have too in the last couple of months, looking back on the last number of months, trying to find silver linings, trying to find things that they would keep. And I think that's a really useful strategy. It's a really useful activity, especially for people in business to look back and say, okay, as we define whatever our new normal will be, what do I definitely want to keep? And ask your clients, ask your team, if you have a team, what should we keep? What have we done that you don't want to let go of? Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really valuable question, particularly with entrepreneurs. And, and a lot of people have discovered, for example, um, Zoom calls as, as a, an alternative to meeting in person and to traveling long distances and virtual conferences as an alternative to in-person big conferences where everybody travels halfway around the world and spends a lot of money on hotel accommodation as well as the conference package to get together. Now, because of the pandemic, that hasn't been possible for quite some time. So people have built these alternatives and, and as they've done that, they've learned, oh, this is actually a, another good way to do this. So whilst we can go back to the in-person meetings, there's always that alternative. And so the question then becomes, does it make sense to have the big in-person meeting or can we do the virtual event? And you know, when, when do we do one and when do we do the other? Whereas beforehand, it was always assumed that the in-person was always going to be the best way to do it. So I think that's a really great example of, yeah, let's, let's explore that as something we can keep in our little bag of ways to run these events or ways to have meetings. You mentioned the word disruption and disruption is difficult. It's upsetting. Uh, it, it implies, and it is in this case, a lot of pain, but within disruption, there's a great deal of opportunity. So if there is something that you had wanted to try, this year might be a good time to try it. We are hmm. discovering that so many things we thought were, of course, were assumptions, as you mentioned, are actually up for grabs more than we thought they had been. Hmm. Yeah, great point. And people are, are much more forgiving of, of trying out something different right now in the current environment. And so, um, you know, if, if it fails badly or miserably, or if you're worried that it might fail badly or miserably and you're fearful, um, mitigate that fear because people are quite forgiving right now of, of if you're, you're open, say, hey, we're trying out this different way of doing this particular thing, uh, people are quite forgiving. 
I was looking through, um, well, I guess there's a fundamental question of why do we all find change so hard um, as humans? And, and yet, you know, things are changing all the time. I mean, our heartbeat, for example, changes all the time uh, in response to whatever activity we're doing. So when we're sleeping, it's quite low. When we get up and exercise, it goes quite high and, and there's a whole spectrum in between. So, so the human body is actually a change machine and yet our brains, our, our kind of mind is always thinking, you know, I don't want anything to change. And I, I find great deal of difficulty dealing with any, any change that I'm conscious of and aware around me. And I was reflecting on that as I was um, researching this, this um, episode. And I thought, well, change, whether it's good or bad change, there is always this sense of loss or grief associated with it. So what, what's your view on that? You know, obviously, if, if there's a, you know, with the pandemic, for example, that change, I mean, it's, it's obvious there's a sense of loss and grief associated with that. And that, that's their feelings that we have to deal with as well as the change. But I think that's, is that true of a good change as well? Oh, one that we initiate ourselves? Yes, absolutely. Change that we want and change that we don't, change we predicted and change that we didn't, all of it causes three predictable reactions in our brain, none of which feel great. Loss, mm. as you mentioned, distrust, and discomfort. And the reason is simple. Our brains have one overarching mission, and that is to keep us alive. Because we are currently alive, our brain is suspicious of all change. All change could put us at risk. So the first thing that we do, and I think it might be really fun, Jorgen, if you can think of a time in your life where you had a change that you anticipated and worked for and wanted, like a move, a physical move in your home or to another country or a job change or something that you very much wanted, planned for, worked for, and achieved. Can you think of something that fits mm. that? Picture? Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. So when you found out that I mean, really, the moment that you realized it was going to be successful, you, you signed on your home or you were sat down and said, here's the promotion or the client that you've been working towards or whatever it was. At the moment that you found out, the very first thing your brain did was say, oh, no, what am I going to lose? <laughs> and yeah, that's right. <laughs> unfortunately, and you may keep it, you have enough life experience to keep that whole conversation very internal. But the very first thing your brain does is count up what the cost might be. An example that I use often with people is a promotion because it's something that we think about, plan for, ask for, work towards, want, presumably. And then we find out from someone else, you got it. And the very first thing your brain does is say, what friendships will you lose? What creature comforts will change? Will your office be in the same place? Will you know where to get that life-giving cup of coffee first thing in the morning? Will you have an assistant in your new role that supports you like the assistant that you have now? What will put you at risk? The next thing that your brain does is say, did I really get the promotion? Do I deserve the promotion? Will I fall flat on my face with the promotion? It's really distrustful. Is this a change we can count on? Good or bad, can we count on it? And then as soon as you start to believe this change is really happening, they didn't accidentally send me this email about the promotion when it was meant to go to someone else. <laughs> the next thing your brain does is figure out what's uncomfortable about this. Very much like if you had a pair of pants you really wanted that was just like a pair of pants you used to have and had lost in one of your travels. 
and you go to the store and you find the exact pair of pants, right color, right size, right brand, and you try them on, still the first thing your brain will do is say, those tags itch. It pulls a little bit over here. It looks for differences because again, your brain is meant to protect you. And so as soon as, and, and you can still be in your feelings about that loss or because there are some real losses when you're promoted in your communication network, in your friend group, in your perception, in your time at home, is this gonna take more time away from home? So the losses are real. The distrust is understandable. The discomfort is accurate. As soon as you remember, just remember that you have choices given this change, you're beginning to act in a resilient way. And it doesn't mean you stop feeling all loss, distrust, and discomfort. You can choose to act in a resilient way, but it's until you actually remember and and decide to think about what are my options here, even if you don't like any of them, what are my options here? Before then, you're in this cascade of neurochemicals that everyone has with every single change. And those, those chemicals are why we need those resilient actions and why we have to build those skills to get better at it. Mm, yeah, I love that. And and something you said there at the end, I think, is is really important because I, you know, there's a school of thought that says, here's some ways, here's some tips to suppress those those thoughts, which as you say, they're important because we might find ourselves in a situation where our life is under threat. And it's probably a really good thing to have all of those feelings in that situation uh, because they may actually save our life. So suppressing them, I think, is not a good idea and not a, not a habit to develop. Uh, on the other hand, highlighting to yourself that my response to this, I have choices in our, how I respond to this. And, and so what can I choose that will serve me best? So to me, that implies that resilience isn't a talent that we're born with, but it's a skill we develop. So what, what, what are some of the things that we can do to develop that skill, to build on what we have, what we already have inside us and, and become more resilient? Okay, so I want to explain a little bit of the science behind this because I think that adults are healthily skeptical about new great ideas without understanding yeah. where the thinking comes from. So there are five scientifically validated resilience scales that you could look up online. Uh, some of them have three questions. There's one with 50 questions asking you questions about your experiences and your attitudes to determine how resilient you are right now. I mean, very much like an IQ test or a personality test. It's a, a resilient scale. These questions, when you make a list of all, I mean, if you aggregate them, there's over a hundred questions. They're really asking about eight skills and eight attributes. And of those 16 items, only one is fixed. That's past successes and struggles. But the other 15 are all growth commodities, just like those kids in elementary school who might start out in the gifted or the slow readers group, how they're taught, what they learn can not only help them learn to read, but can help them learn to learn. So all of these are growth commodities. And it's those skills that I think it's really valuable for adults to know. I'm actually giving a TED talk in March of 2021 about personal resilience and how we develop those skills for ourselves. But also in business, as an entrepreneur, you are often a change agent. You are telling 
people on your team or your clients about change. So if you don't understand how change impacts people and what they need to be resilient and how you can help them be more resilient, then you often feel shocked and betrayed by people's reaction to your announcements about change. Hmm. Right? You feel like, what? Well, don't you trust me? You know, you're a leader of an organization and you say to your people, hey, we're going to change this thing. And you get a nearly universal negative response. Yeah. That, that feels offensive. Why don't they trust hmm. me? Don't they know I have our best interests at heart? I would never choose something that was terrible for us. Why are they reacting so negatively? If you know, oh yeah, change is hard. This could be the best thing. You know, I could be telling you that we're gonna have whipped cream sandwiches for lunch every day that are zero calorie, but taste amazing. You'd still be really hesitant. You'd experience loss and distrust and discomfort before you said, great, can I have sprinkles on that? So if you can understand the natural reaction to all change, and then how you can develop the skills in yourself, in your team, and in your clients, so that they can navigate it more easily, then all change gets easier. Not, not stressful, but you get to use the stress to become more the kind of person or the kind of organization that you want to be. Hmm. Well, tell us a little bit about what, what some of those qualities Absolutely. are, what some of those skills and attributes are. So I mentioned one before, which is to build connections. And we talked about going wider and deeper that you said, you know, if I don't know how to answer a problem, if I can't solve it myself, if I have those connections and I know how to ask for help, then I can go to others. That's absolutely true. You touched on another one actually because of the pandemic. You said that people are uh, a little more forgiving when we try new things. It's actually a resilient skill that many of us have built in the last year, being open to change, open to the idea that the path I was on or the plan that we had isn't the only option. That's a really important skill. Another important resilient skill is setting boundaries, deciding what you will and what you won't do in light of a particular change. That is integral to what we talked about coming through that change as much or more the kind of person that you wanna be. When you fail to set boundaries and say, okay, given this change, I will do this, but I won't do that. And you say, oh, I'll do anything to get through this. If your life isn't in danger, that's going to put your integrity in real danger. It's going to put your reputation in real danger. Another skill that I think is, if I had to pick one, now I would argue that the final skill, perseverance, is the one that most people most easily relate to resilience. When I work with corporations, one of the first activities we'll do is create a word cloud of what resilience looks like in people. And perseverance, tenacity, stick to get up when you fall down comes up over and over and over again. And I totally understand why. Uh, when people succeed, I think that perseverance is what they most often credit with their success, right? They'll say, oh, I fell down seven times, but I got up eight. However, I would argue that the single most important resilience skill is the ability to manage your own discomfort without putting yourself in danger. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. And you, just before you went on to perseverance, and and I think, you know, I think that's a really important skill to have from the point of view of we shouldn't give up at the first sign of discomfort or the first sort of um, hurdle that we come to. But focusing solely on perseverance is at odds with what you said before that, which is being open to change. 
So if we kind of have this dogged perseverance that I'm going to break through this no matter what, uh, it means that you're overlooking the opportunities to try different things or, or choose another path. There is a colloquial definition of insanity, which is trying the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. Yeah. So sometimes people decide that perseverance doesn't mean trying to solve a problem in different ways. They say, well, if I'm going to persevere, it means trying to solve this problem the same way over and over and over again. And then if I fall down 78 times, it doesn't matter. All I have to do is get up 79 times. And that's, that's not the case because the other three skills that we haven't yet mentioned are ones that entrepreneurs are fantastic at. Most business people really have these nails, these nailed, setting goals, finding options and taking action. But that hmm. finding options, you know, you know, the first choice that most of us go with when faced with a decision is the first thing we think of. Hmm. We have a lot of lore around that, right? We say, go with your gut, trust yeah. your instincts, you know, your first idea is probably your best. I don't know about you. My first idea is rarely my best. <laughs> it's usually a good rough draft, but as much as I hate editing, I have to edit that rough draft idea. So finding options is about deciding that every problem has more than one solution. So if I can line up a few possibilities, that gives me a much better chance of choosing better likelihood of choosing the best of my options instead of just the easiest, the least uncomfortable, or the one I thought of first. Hmm. And of course, with um, innovation, having an innovation mindset means that you come up with as many options as you can, because that that gives you the ability to have so many different choices that you know some of them may be so wild and outside the box, so to speak that um, that's actually where the innovation is, or you have so many different options that connecting the dots between some of them comes up with further options. So that's, that's certainly something in the innovation space that we work hard on. It's true, but it's also easy to get stuck in option overload, which is why yeah. practicing taking an action, you know, it's just, okay, enough talking, let's do something and see how it goes that if you know how to manage discomfort, especially that discomfort around it not going as well as you'd hoped or failing entirely, then you'll be more likely to do it. People talk about when we're faced with change, especially change we don't like or didn't expect, but really all change, cortisol, that chemical that gets released in us is usually referred to as the fight or flight chemical. But one of the things that I point out a great deal in companies is that actually the most common reaction, it can cause that fight reaction, you know, a surge of it's adrenaline is how people call speak about cortisol hmm. that they get that surge of anger or reactivity or that they just want to run away but actually the most common reaction is freezing feeling overwhelmed and just freezing up and not taking any action at all so action itself choosing one choice from your viable list trying it and seeing how it goes is often what people need to push them through a block hmm. well that that brings up another point, and I uh, thought of it earlier when you were talking about some of the attributes, and that's um, being being learnable or being teachable, uh, learning from experience. And of course, that requires taking action, doesn't it? Because if you kind of mull over a thousand possibilities without testing anything out to see what the result is, then you don't actually learn anything. It's 100 percent true. And it would be great if just talking about it would tell you if it was going to be successful or not. 
And it's good to have mentors who can give you a sense of that. But the truth is, often you have to just try it. Hmm. All right. Now, um, you mentioned the word stress there a few times, and I know you've got a slightly different take on stress than perhaps most of us have, which, uh, you know, the traditional viewpoint is, well, you've got to avoid stress because it's not good for your health. It's not good for your mental well-being. Um, and, you know, so chill out, relax, don't be stressed about this. Um, so tell us about your view. You're going to, if you had someone on your team that came to you and said, listen, you're going to, that project that you told me about yesterday, it really stressed me out. You would understand whether you agreed or not, you would understand that that person was saying that you had done something wrong, right? Hmm. That you had either presented it poorly or hadn't prepared them well or whatever, or the project itself was unreasonable, that definitely that would be them trying to present a problem that they expected you to engage in fixing. And what, and that can lead, especially in leadership, to a great deal of trying to thread the needle. We know that leaders want to adapt, to be ready for upcoming difficulties, to foresee change and manage it well. But leaders also, in great ways, have increasingly become much more concerned about the health and well-being of their human capital. And because we have this narrative that stress is, by definition, poisonous and damaging, leaders are trying to thread this needle of how can I navigate change without stressing out my team? And I argue that stress is actually a leadership technique. Why would I say that? Well, if you want your team or yourself to be able to handle more, but feel it less because a hundred percent true that too much stress from too many different angles without the right support is damaging. That if you want to be able to handle as much stress as you're facing now, or could face in a year when you hit that big milestone, or you're aiming for that big milestone, or that big setback gets in your way, and you want to be able to feel it less, be less negatively impacted by the stress, it's actually facing stress that will get you there. In exactly the same way that if I want to be able to run a mile without getting winded, I have to start running. Hmm. Stress is to resilience and mental health as exercise is to body fitness. Just like exercise, most of us don't like stress. Stress and exercise are terribly uncomfortable, absolutely, and can be harmful if you overdo it. That's absolutely true. But they are both also the only way to get stronger. So I want people to stop fearing stress and start using it. The work that I do in the business setting is to shift that mindset away from stress minimizing or stress eliminating and say, how are you using stress? If I decided that I wanted to run a marathon, I would need the right coach and probably more sleep and maybe some more water and some time. And in the same way, if we want our organizations, our small nimble teams, our clients to be able to better navigate the difficulty, the change that's coming, we can't do it by telling them to avoid or eliminate stress. You'd never say that to a client, partially because it would be so frustrating for them uh, because if they're coming to you with a problem, then they just have the problem and blaming them doesn't help. But partially because it's not possible. 
change is stressful. And as you said, the human body and the human experience is all about change. So what we need to do is learn to minimize or reduce the stress that's damaging, like how to get a hold of it and control it a little bit better and how to use the stress that we're facing like we use exercise so that in two months, if I've been working up to it, I can run a mile and it doesn't even feel taxing. Hmm. Yeah, I like that analogy with the exercise. And one of the things that occurred to me there as you were explaining that with exercise, there's a whole range of things that we can do and tools and ideas that we've come up with as, as a, a community, as a human race even, uh, mm -hmm. that can make exercise fun, at least for most people. Yes. So, for example, you can go out and exercise with your friends or you can do exercise. So maybe you don't like running, but you like skiing or you like hiking or you like, uh, like or cycling, cycling yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So there's so many different options. So you can go out and do something you really enjoy, which uh, gets you exercising and, and you forget about. So it's not about the exercise. It's about enjoying yourself. And while you're enjoying yourself, you're exercising. Are there things we can do in um, in kind of training for stress, if you like, um, analogous to that? Absolutely. The And I love that you mentioned fun because just like exercise, it doesn't have to be miserable. And just like exercise, if you're somebody who like me who, uh, yeah, the idea of finding an activity I like is lovely, but I don't, I don't forget that I'm exercising, right? I don't forget that I don't love this. So for myself, I exercise best when I distract myself from it, when I'm getting it done, but I'm also watching a trashy TV show that I love or talking on the phone. Well, okay, gasping on the phone as I listen to a friend of mine <laughs> tell me what's going on with them. So it is absolutely possible to build a bunch of these skills by being a little bit intentional and including them in things that you're already doing. So there's two ways to go about it, to say, what are some fun things that I could do? And um, I'm actually, I'm writing a book with activities to build these skills that you can do to build connections. There are a lot of ways to build connections that are really fun by different definitions of fun, different people's definitions of fun. There are a bunch of ways that you can learn to manage your discomfort doing things you really genuinely enjoy. There are also things that you do anyway that with a little bit of intentionality can build your skills for resilience. For example, voting. Voting is an excellent example of building your resilience around setting goals, around taking action, around managing discomfort. Rarely when we have the opportunity to vote does the perfect candidate present themselves in any situation, in any community, no matter how small or large the election. But you learn to manage your discomfort, figure out what's acceptable to you, set your boundaries, what you will and what you won't accept, and then set your goals, what's most important to you, and take action. If you're going to vote anyway, and I really hope that everyone is in almost every situation, then if you can think intentionally about how this links to your resilience, you will build more resilience than if you just happened to vote and didn't think about it. There are a bunch of ways. Choosing cereal in the cereal aisle is another example of something that you're probably going to do. And so when you go into a store that has a lot of options, if you can think, okay, I want to build my resilience. So I'm going to figure out what my goal is with this cereal. 
Is it for taste? Is it for health? Is it for brand? Whatever. I'm going to find more than one option. I'm not just going to settle on the first thing I see. I'm going to look, I'm going to put three in my cart that would all be viable. And then I'm going to put two back after I figure out which one I really want. You have practiced the skills that will make you more resilient the next time you're facing a choice and you really don't know what to do. Hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. So there's a whole lot of little things in it we can be much more conscious about or we can adapt those those activities in a way that build some of those skills and uh, attributes that you talked about earlier. I love it. I um, I was recently on a, a cycling trip. We went away with a, a bunch of folks for a week and it was very windy during that week. So a lot of the cycling was into the wind, which is pretty hard work for those people that cycle would know very much if you if you're if you're cycling into a 30 to 40 kilometer an hour headwind uh that's hard work and stressful yeah Yeah. um one of the things um i mean we were very clever about it we planned our routes that you could cycle in all four directions from where we were staying there were fabulous routes in all directions so what we did was decide which way is the wind blowing today and we'll cycle out into the wind and come home with the wind at our backs. And if you've got a 30 to 40 kilometer an hour wind at your back, that's actually really fun. You can fly on the bicycle. So (laughs) that doesn't sound bad at all. (laughs) Exactly. So what what I would do in the morning, I did, you know, the there'd be like two or three hours of very hard work into that wind and I would just keep reminding myself this is going to be so much fun coming back <laughs> so yeah. is there something like that that uh, we can do also with absolutely with absolutely the you know rewarding yourself is really about managing your discomfort you were managing your discomfort by focusing on a later goal by thinking about what you would get out of this if you would just put it in and I would venture to say that entrepreneurs are pretty good at that. We're really good at investing up front because we have a lot of faith in our ability to get something out of it on the back end. And I never, when I work with an individual or a company, I never want to ask them to add to their to-do list because if they're coming to me to help with stress management, what they don't want is more stuff to stress them out. (laughs) What I want to do is help people see how the things that they're already doing could be serving them even better. They could be using the stress that they're facing and the activities they're already engaging in to strengthen themselves even more. I liken it, if you'll, if you'll go with me on the exercise analogy, it's yeah. the difference between having a coach and an exercise plan and how fit that can make you or wandering around the parking lot looking for your car because you can't remember where you parked. Okay. They're both exercise, but the first one is much more effective. Hmm. Yeah, and then of course there is a a structure to that exercise. And I think that's that's where the coach plays a really important role is is designing the structure of the exercise and the progression and the sequence in a way that that actually builds the skills and builds the fitness of those skills, right? And what's great is that people in the business world and I would say, especially entrepreneurs, are really pretty expert in themselves. They've had to do some really insightful work to figure out what they're good at, what they want to bring to people, and how they can do that. And so in that case, it's like working with a pro athlete on their training regimen. 
as opposed to working with somebody who's never exercised once in their lives. Hmm. Okay. Now we've talked a lot about kind of applying um, this thinking to ourselves in terms of developing skills and attributes that can make us more resilient and more more adaptable or, or deal with change in a better way. How can we help others, particularly as, let's say, a, a business owner that, that's providing products or services to clients, how can we help clients um, accept changes more easily that, uh, let's say there's a product or a service that we have that requires them to make a change in, in something they're doing as well, but there's a huge benefit out of that product or service. So how can we present that whole scenario in a way that helps them adapt or helps them take that change on board and, and improve their resilience, if you like? The first thing that will come out of this conversation is good news for everyone who's listening, because just knowing now really internalizing and thinking about the fact that every change that you suggest to a client will cause them to feel loss and distrust and discomfort will inform your process. If you expect that this isn't about you or their distrust in you or the fact that you're actually a fraud and no good at the work that you do or that they heard something bad about you, this is just normal. Like when I hit your knee with an uh, with a reflex hammer, you will kick me. So mm -hmm. when you give the suggestion of a change to your client, they will kick you and it has nothing to do with you. So knowing that can inform your approach. And I hope that it will. I hope that you will say to them, when this change sounds awful to you, I really want to hear, not if, right? That mm. difference between when and if language. When builds resilience because it assumes the difficulty and asks people to think past it. If implies that you didn't do a good enough job. If you don't like this change when I present it, if you don't like the suggestion, implies that if I don't do a good job, then I hope you'll let me know. You say, when I give you this proposal and it feels really uncomfortable to you, I'm interested in which areas are most uncomfortable. Let's address those first. That way, when your client reads your proposal and says, oh, this doesn't, oh, he told me I'd be uncomfortable. Hmm. Then you look like a rock star. By the way, if they read it and they're not at all uncomfortable, they feel like a rock star. They're like, yeah. he, I'm not like his other clients. I'm ready for this change. I think <laughs> this is exactly what I want. This is a win-win situation for you as the consultant or as the service provider or as the manufacturer. When you have that opportunity to sit with them and help them navigate that change, you make them more resilient. Really, there are, there are three things that people need to move them through that cycle a little more smoothly and a little bit more quickly. What cycle do I mean? I mean that loss, distrust, discomfort, getting them to move into choice, engagement, and reunification. Reunification is that moment where you feel as much or more the person you wanted, wanted to be as you move through mm. this change. So how do you move them through a little more slowly? The first thing is empathy. Empathy that recognizes that even as you get them to choice and engagement, they may still be feeling loss. I like to use pandemic birthday celebrations as an example of this because almost all of us have had a pandemic birthday and we've all experienced this with family members. Once somebody realizes that they're going to have a birthday during the pandemic, the first thing is loss. 
oh, it's not going to be like I pictured. And this year I was going to do these things. And last year didn't go great. And I really, blah, blah, blah. then distrust. Do I really have to follow these restrictions? Do I really have to have a birthday? Couldn't I get around this somehow? Once somebody recognizes that, yeah, okay, I, it, it is going to be my birthday during the pandemic, then they feel really uncomfortable. I'm not going to get to do these things. And this person that I wanted to be with won't be there. And I, I'm feeling that now they're not here and I'm feeling that. But as soon as they remember that they have choice, I could have a car parade birthday. I could experience this over Zoom with a lot of people. I could carve out two hours every day for a month and spend them with different individuals one-on-one. -on -one. Then they're engaging. But it doesn't mean they're not still feeling lost for the big party that they wanted to have or the big vacation that they wanted to take. So having empathy for the fact that choice and engagement is resilient and it's where we want to be and we're interested in how they're feeling. We want to support them through their loss and distrust and discomfort and that they could be in both places at once. That's really important. The second thing that you can do is give them a little time to process. I recognize the irony of the fact that I just keep talking and I'm suggesting <laughs> you stop talking and give them a little bit of time to process. Let them sit with something for a day or two instead of pressuring, pressuring them. People have a harder time being resilient when they are pressured for a decision, when they're pressured to take action. And the third thing is asking if you can make suggestions about what choices they have given this change. Autonomy makes a big difference in people's ability to be resilient. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I love, I love the analogies too, because it really highlights, highlights a practical example of uh, that we can probably all relate to because I think, um, you know, the pandemic's been going on for... Everyone having had their birthday during a pandemic. Exactly. It's been going on for over a year. So we've all had a birthday during the pandemic and and um, many of us during lockdown so that um, it hasn't been possible to perhaps have a, a in-person celebration. I remember last year at Easter, we actually did uh, Easter lunch by Zoom. Yeah because it was in the middle of the first lockdown that we had here. And uh, the benefit of that, of course, is that we brought in my son in San Francisco and we brought in our niece in, who lives in London. And uh, so we had, uh, we had a family get together without people having to travel from overseas. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. All right. So um, Empathy is the key word here, and and then I like the cycle, the cycle of um, going from loss, distrust, through to taking action and and actually seeing the benefits and accepting the change, um, and accepting the discomfort uh, as well. I think that's uh, really important to recognise that okay, the, this this change, there's going to be these benefits in the change. It's a little bit like the exercise. I'm going to go out for a a ride today, I'm going to push myself really hard and it's going to be uncomfortable, but I know that by doing that, then um, my next big event is going to feel so much easier and much more fun. I think that's absolutely the case, but it's hard to remember when you're in the midst of feeling uncomfortable <laughs> like that, or when you're trying to guide someone else whose decision really impacts your bottom line emotionally or financially. Hmm. All right. Well, this has been fabulous, Deborah. I um, really enjoyed the conversation, but I'm just, I just had a quick look at the clock and we've been going for quite a while. So I think it's time to move on to the buzz, which is our innovation round. And it's designed to help our audience who are primarily innovators and leaders in their field with some tips from your experience. 
So I've got five questions. Hopefully you'll give us some really insightful answers that will inspire some action today to, um, for the listener to go and do something awesome as a result. So what's the number one thing you think anyone needs to do to be more innovative? Get more curious, especially when you're frustrated. If you can tie curiosity to frustration, uh, frustration means unmet expectations. So if you can get curious about what you're not understanding, that will change your outlook. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. And um, particularly, one of the things I do, I say, I can't be the only person having this frustration or this problem. So why am I feeling the way I'm doing? Why is it having this impact on me? What can I do about it? Has somebody else solved the problem? How, how has someone else solved this? How okay. someone else solved this? And if the answer to that is I can't find anything, then, well, what could I do to solve it? And and then, of course, the cycle comes back to, well, I can't be the only person that's had this problem. I've now solved it for myself. So who else can I help? Definitely. Hmm. All right. Now, what's the best thing you've done to develop new ideas? Lateral thinking. When I hear about something that reminds me of a conversation that I had in a totally different setting, that's when I start to see themes. And that, oh, this reminds me of that conversation I ha was having with someone about something entirely different. That's when I write it down. I just pull out my phone and I have an app that I use for my to-do list and I put it right on there. And if I hear it one more time, you know, in a short period of time, that usually means that it's something that either is bubbling up for me or it's a need or a problem that I can help address in a bunch of different, with a bunch of different clients or in different areas of my life. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. And it's it's kind of like connecting the dots between seemingly disparate things because they've caught your attention. There must be something in your uh, unconscious that that's yeah. been triggered. It's kind of like the reticular activation system, isn't it? That's been my experience, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, do you have a favorite resource you use most often? Actually, the one I just mentioned. So I just use a to-do list app, but I do it in a way I learned from my mom when she was using a steno pad and a ballpoint pen. I have one list for every day of the week and it's much easier digitally than it was for my mom. She was forever scratching things yeah. out and <laughs> over lists, but I use my to-do list app and I, I literally just have seven lists Sunday through Saturday. And I, as something comes up that needs to be done, I put it on the day either that it must be done or that I think my schedule best accommodates it or whatever it is. And at the end of each night or first thing the next morning, I look back to the day before and see what didn't happen and I redistribute. Or I decide, you know, it didn't need to be done in the first place and I get rid of it. But I never leave it hanging out on that list unless it's meant to be done on that day the next week. Hmm. Oh, okay. So, so when you come around to Tuesday next week, or whatever it is, it's Wednesday, Wednesday, your time. Uh, when you come around to Wednesday next week, there'll be the things that you haven't ticked off from this week. Tomorrow morning, I'll look at Wednesday and I'll anything that didn't get done for today, I'll redistribute to tomorrow or whichever day it makes the most sense, unless I decide, oh, hey, that was never going to get done. That's That's not necessary. And I get rid of it. The only time I would leave something on Wednesday is if, you know, like taking the trash out, that happens to be a Wednesday okay. night. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. All right. Um, now, what's the best way to keep a, a client on track? Letting them know beforehand that you're going to do that and asking them 
when can I, in, in whatever language makes sense to you and your client, hmm. when can I hold you accountable to this? Someone just pitched me actually to publish a book. And she said to me, I'm going to have that proposal to you within 24 hours. When can I email you if I haven't heard back? And so I thought through my week and said to her, okay, if you haven't heard back from me by the next Tuesday, I hope that you'll email me. And she said, that's exactly what I'll do. So letting me know what the expectation is. And it's not that she's emailing me because I dropped the ball or I failed. It also gives me a backstop. Now I know if I don't get to her by Tuesday, I won't lose the opportunity. She'll reach out to me. And I think mm -hmm. that that level of not only reminding, but communicating and expectation setting beforehand is a really supportive resilience building way to approach your clients. Yeah, I love that. I love that idea of when can I reach out to you to follow up because then um, as the recipient of that follow-up email, I don't feel as though I'm being hounded there because I right. know, I know. Gave permission. It's I've, I've given them permission. Yeah, I'm expecting that email today. <laughs> yeah. Great. Yeah, I love that suggestion. All right. Now, what's the number one thing anyone can do to differentiate themselves? There's this idea called knowledge translation, Jurgen, uh, and I can explain it really easily in my field. I'm a family doctor. So a patient will come to me and they'll say, hey, I saw this commercial or this news article about this new blood pressure medication. And it's my job to knowledge translate, to take what I know of speaking medicine and what I know about this person's experience of high blood pressure and say, okay, here's why I do or don't think that that's a good fit for you. That's knowledge translation. Everyone has the expertise to do knowledge translation about something. There is some field, some area that you understand better than most people do. And a really great way to set yourself apart, and I've done this by going to the media with my knowledge translation, but also to clients. You can, you know, I hope you're writing about it in your blog or on your newsletter or doing YouTube videos about it or on your podcast. But if you can highlight the knowledge that you can translate and make it attainable, understandable, and useful to your audience, that will really set you apart. Mm, love that. Love that. And uh, the example is really clear because there's so much information these days on the internet and particularly in the medicine and health field. Um, you know, we have this joke all around the world, you know, ask Dr. Google because we can go on there and search, let's say, high blood pressure and, and we'll get thousands of pieces of information. Um, some of it good, some of it not so good. But of course, as a non-medical profession, how do you know which which is good or not? And so it's really sort of easy and obvious for me, but you have an area like that too. And mm. everybody does. They have something that they've either they have experience with or training in or they lived in that world. And because every field has their own abbreviations and jargon, there's something that you're an expert in that most people think is opaque to them. Um, I... When I was a young adult, I had never been snow skiing. And a guy that I was dating was a great skier and said, oh, I'd love to take you. It's so wonderful. I want you to have that experience. Well, we went and he took me to the top of a mountain that I am sure to him looked like a gently rolling slope. And to me looked like a cliff that he wanted me to jump off of. So you have to figure out what you see that's a gently rolling slope that most other people think are cliffs and help them navigate it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's a very good example. All right, well, thanks, Deborah. This has been really fabulous. Now, where can people find out more about the work you do and maybe even reach out and say thanks for what you've shared with us today? 
The easiest place to find me is my website, which is askdrg.com. And I hope because I am all about social media that you'll find me on LinkedIn or on Twitter and let me know what you thought and what questions this brought up for you. Mm, right. And we'd love to um, tag me too on, on any comments or questions and um, we'll continue this conversation. So uh, do you have some parting advice for our listener today, Deborah? The, the really the advice that I hope that I can give to absolutely everyone is that when you experience stress, you haven't failed. Every time you experience stress, however you've handled that stress or others in the past is an opportunity. You can choose to take a resilient action. And like Jurgen said, it doesn't mean you have to stop feeling the way you feel about it. Shoving your feelings down is not actually being resilient. So try at some point in the next week when you're facing a stressor that's really uncomfortable to approach it and say, okay, I don't have to like it. How can I use it? Hmm. I love that. And and it's such a powerful reframe, isn't it? it? Because the moment you ask a question like that, it immediately opens up choices because it kind of says, well, I've got to take some action here. So what action can I take? And then, then you start to think of, well, I could do this, I could do that, or I could do this other thing. And, and there you have the choices as opposed to saying, oh, I feel stressed. I'm just going to um, withdraw and go and sulk in the corner, as it were. Tempting. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a choice, but, you know, it's yeah. good to have a few other options. You can manage your discomfort that way, but not, it's not a good long-term solution. That's right. It probably doesn't serve you that well. Right. Um, all right. Now, finally, Deborah, who else should I get on this podcast and why? That's a great question. There is a, a woman that I know, actually, she's here locally in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Her name is Disha Filia, and she's a writer. She's a fiction and short story writer. And the thing that I would say she's the most innovative about is helping people use their voice to tell their own story, even if it's not a story about themselves, meaning not only an autobiographical story, but the power of storytelling to help people open their minds, open more to change. And I wonder, as people are listening to this, and if they've stuck with us through the entire episode, it's because they know, Jurgen, that you always present them with solutions to problems that they're facing. And I think that a lot of entrepreneurs miss out on the opportunities to use creativity and stories to help people solve problems that they're facing. Mm, yeah, I'll, I'll, we'll get an introduction to Disha from you. And I really look forward to that conversation because that's one of the things that I really, um, well, I'm trying to get better at. I don't think I'm really good at, but I see the power in that of telling stories as metaphors to help people understand a concept. Now, we we have told a couple of stories today. So you've shared with us a, a number. Uh, the last one was the skiing off the cliff as opposed to the little gentle slopes. <laughs> the different viewpoints. And... not go well. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I can. I can picture that one. I, I, uh, I didn't start skiing until I was about twenty-one years old or so, and and I can picture that. I remember there's a beginner slope on the mountain we went on, and I thought this is a beginner slope. It's kind of like. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this. Thanks so much for sharing your time and your insights with us so generously today, Deborah. This has been a lot of fun, and I've learned a lot about. Uh, 
resilience and how we can build our skills and our our mindset to start with, but also skills and attributes and behaviors that we can learn to become more resilient in dealing with change, in dealing with uncertainty. So thanks for sharing all that with us today. All the best for the future. I look forward to staying in touch. And you did mention a TED talk in March, 2021. So we'll keep an eye on that. Actually, by the time this episode publishes, it will probably already be there. So we will link to that in the show notes, as well as all the other things we've spoken about. So all the best for the future and let's stay in touch. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that insightful and really informative conversation with Dr. G and took something away from her episode. One idea I took away from the conversation with Dr. G was the language of when as opposed to if. To use that shows both empathy and builds resilience. It's a magical little hack. I'd love to know what you took away from Dr. G's episode. Leave a comment below the blog post, which you can find at innovabiz.co forward slash askdrg. That is A-S-K-D-R-G. All lowercase, all one word, innovabiz.co forward slash askdrg. You'll also find contact information for getting in touch with Deborah there, as well as links to the Ask Dr. G website, to her social media pages and the other resources we spoke about in our conversation today. If you like this episode, do share it with two other people that it might help and tag me in on that share so that I can thank you personally with a special surprise gift. Deborah suggested that we have a conversation with writer and storyteller Disha Filior on a future Innova Buzz podcast episode. So Disha, keep an eye on your inbox for an invitation from us to the Innova Buzz podcast, courtesy of Dr. Deborah Gilboa. Tune in again to the next episodes of the Innova Buzz podcast, where we've got yet more fantastic guests lined up, including leadership expert Roxanne Kaufman Elliott of Pro Laureate and public relations and media expert Nia Lee. Thanks for listening to this episode. Make sure you subscribe to the show to be reminded of new episodes. It's free to subscribe. Leave a review if you like. Even if you don't like me, I'm okay with that. I'm asking you to leave a review because it helps other people find this show. Go to innovabiz.co to join our marketing transformation community and access a free gift my team and I made for you. It's the Marketing Master Mini Class. We want to give you everything you need to transform your marketing into a human-centered, relationship-focused growth engine. Until next time, I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz. Remember, be awesome and keep innovating.